Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I am Bill Huffman, and I am an investigative journalist. And welcome to episode one of the Who Killed Amy Mahalovic podcast, a Slow Burn Media LLC production. This podcast will take you deep into one of Northeast Ohio's most frustrating unsolved murders. We'll take a step-by-step look at what happened back in 1989, as well as look at what's happening today with advancements in DNA technology that have been used to solve other old cases, such as the Golden State Killer, as well as April Tinsley's case. I will speak with Amy's father, Mark Mahalovic, Mark Spetzel, who was a patrolman when the abduction took place and is now the chief of the Bay Village Police Department. Retired FBI special agent and head of the Amy Task Force, Phil Torsney, as well as true crime author James Renner, whose first book was about his own search for Amy's killer. I will also speak with other key figures, as well as some of true crime's top podcasters who have done episodes on Amy's case. October 27th will mark the 29th anniversary of Amy's abduction. And with her killer still at large, I wanted to put together a podcast that would help keep national and even international listeners aware of Amy's mysterious unsolved case, as well as let the killer know that this community will never forget what he did that day and remind him that we will one day find out who killed Amy Mahalovic. What makes Amy's case so unique? is the manner in which she was abducted. This wasn't some random act of opportunity. A man who claimed to have worked with her mother had apparently called Amy at home and arranged to meet with him at Bay Square. The intention was to help him pick out a gift for her mother's recent promotion at work. According to reports, Amy's mother, Margaret, had recently been moved from part-time to full-time, so this may have given Amy some level of comfort. In at least one phone call, this man was able to put Amy at ease and make her feel that this would be a harmless venture, and at the end of the day, she'd be doing something nice for her mother. Before we get too deep into the story, I think it's important to know what type of person Amy was, and Amy's father had this to say about his daughter. Like I've always said, Amy was a can-do person. I mean, you... When she learned how to tie her shoes, if you're in a hurry to tie, try to go someplace and try to tie her shoes, uh, uh, I can do that. You're not, you're not helping. You know, I can do that. Uh, she would have been a good athlete. She, she was, uh, she would have been a good athlete. Uh, loved her animals, whether it was the dog. My one friend in Vermilion had the horse. I mean, she was, and her and Margaret rode horses, but she always loved animals. Uh, very smart. Uh, she was book very book smart. Uh, did well in school, athletics, horses, and and school, and and just usually pretty pretty quiet. If she didn't know you, she wasn't going to talk to you. Yeah, Amy had a lot of friends, the sleepovers, and 
Yeah, she had, she you know they were she had her knitter friends her her group so. She was happy. Oh yeah, Amy was happy. Yep, she had a good she had a good you know things were she she was okay. In all reality, why wouldn't she think this was harmless? Bay Village has very little crime, and the idea of being lured as part of a ruse was not something that Amy would have ever suspected. In fact, there were no murders, no abductions, and no rapes in the year prior to Amy's kidnapping. To say that Bay Village is safe is an understatement. It is regularly ranked as one of the safest and best communities in the Cleveland area to raise a family. Bay Village is a quiet community of 18,000 people. Lieutenant Wilson says this kind of crime is rare. Well, I've been here 23 years and it hasn't happened. This quiet upscale community is totally unaccustomed to this type of trauma. The Mahalovic abduction is on the minds and lips of everyone in town. And authorities fear that with each day that passes, lessens the likelihood of her safe return. Each year, thousands of children disappear without a trace. The most distressing category is that of stranger abduction. All across the country, their faces are posted in supermarkets, gas stations, drugstore windows, and banks, anywhere in hopes of drawing a tip on the case. Despite all of the 1980s, stranger danger PSAs, and lessons we were taught in school. I'm McGruff, the crime dog, but a lot are kidnapped by strangers or even by people they know. Almost 20,000 kids a year. 20,000 kids, one kid at a time. Maybe your kid on your street. It turns out stranger abductions are the least common types of abductions. They are so rare that according to the Poly Class Foundation, only about 100 children, a fraction of 1%, are kidnapped each year, and about half of those 100 children come home. But despite the rare occurrences of stranger abductions, they are the most likely type of abduction to result in a homicide. Unfortunately, if a child is abducted by a stranger, they are very likely to have been done so for sexual purposes and will most often be dead within 24 hours. This case has never left me. This is a case that hit close to home. Not because I knew Amy, but because I knew what kind of life a 10-year-old living in a safe suburb like Bay Village was all about. I was in the same grade as Amy and lived in Rocky River, the city just to the east of Bay Village, and 10 miles to the west of Cleveland. We lived very similar lives, as Bay and River are both lakefront communities with a strong emphasis on community, and therefore we would have participated in similar sports and maybe would have even crossed paths at Westgate Mall or even the Rocky River Ice Rink. 1989 was a formative year in my life. Being only 10 years old, I foolishly thought I had a pretty good grasp on what life was all about. Hell, I even thought life was great. How could I not? I was in fifth grade. I had a great group of friends where we would spend most weekends having sleepovers or building forts in the nearby park. Life up to that point was still very innocent. On Friday nights, we would go ice skating at the rink in Rocky River. And trust me, it was the thing to do in the 80s. In early 1989... The new kids on the block hit the scene. Millie Vanilli were still a thing. And Paula Abdul, pre-American Idol, had two songs on the Billboard Top 10. In October 1989, 
the world was also introduced to those oh so ingenious look who's talking movies look who's talking what a sweetie must be thinking the same thing i am lunch and the cleveland browns were actually good high formation for the browns and the handoff goes to metcalf here's the flea flicker back to kosar webster slaughter is wide open Coincidentally, the World Series resumed on that Friday, October 27th, 1989, after being postponed due to an earthquake that was broadcast live on October 17th. If what I just said went right over your head, Google 1989, and you may not think your childhood was too bad after all. I didn't realize it at the time, but my brain was becoming more aware of the world around me. While there were many true crime events that happened in 1989, the year began with a jolt when Ted Bundy was put in the electric chair for his role in the Chi Omega killings and his historic cross-country murder spree. It has come down to this, an emergency request to the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay of execution in the case of Theodore Bundy has been rejected this evening. The vote was five to four. Bundy is scheduled to die in Florida's electric chair tomorrow morning at seven. 1989 was also the year Eric and Lyle Menendez murdered their parents in cold blood. Who was the person that was shot? My mom and my dad. Your mom and dad? My mom and dad. Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> okay, we're on our way over there with an the ambulance. Okay, I gotta go. <laughs> okay. The Gainesville Ripper was on the loose and yet to be identified. And then 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling was abducted by a masked stranger just five days prior to Amy's disappearance. Jacob's disappearance is especially shocking because he was with his 10-year-old brother, Trevor, and an 11-year-old friend, Aaron Larson, when the abduction took place. According to the boys, they had just leased a videotape from this convenience store and were walking their bicycles down this road when suddenly a masked gunman appeared out of nowhere. With everything that was going on in 1989, it was also the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic that had been taking lives for a number of years and there was still very little understanding of the disease. It was in the fall of 1989, the innocent life that I thought existed in our little bubble began to show signs of cracking because that epidemic landed right in our living room. In the weeks before Amy's abduction, we had a family meeting. We never had family meetings. And this is where I was told that my uncle Peter, my favorite uncle at the time, had AIDS and was most likely to die within the year. Yeah, that innocent life that I was living was beginning to fade away. The harsh reality of life had begun to creep in, and what I was seeing wasn't pretty. How does my favorite uncle get sick? How does a girl get kidnapped from the city right next to where I live? What could I do about it? I was only 10 and didn't know how to react, so I buried it deep inside and tried to forget what I had just heard. I focused on the upcoming sequel to my favorite movie of all time, Back to the Future, played sports, 
and causing havoc with my friends. Because that is what 10-year-olds do when they hear bad news. It's like we're in hell or something. No, it's Hill Valley, although I can't imagine hell being much worse. But they'll all be back. Eat lips, slackers! Biff? Hello? Hey. Hello, anybody home? Why well, they can't be you. Looking back on that time in my life, I can now see why I behaved the way I did during that year. That weekend of the 27th was supposed to be an escape from my reality. I'd spend Friday night at my best friend Drew's house, play a soccer game on Saturday, and cap off the weekend by watching the Cleveland Browns versus the Houston, I'm showing my age, Oilers. The Oilers. The Browns. And the Dog Pound. Sunday. You see, Cleveland is a sports town, and it always will be. Sports are supposed to be an escape from the daily grind, but most often in Cleveland, it just becomes another disappointment in one's life. With the Cleveland Indians finishing sixth in the AL East, the best thing to happen to the team that year was the release of the movie Major League, a true watermark of baseball movies, and it did depict the Cleveland Indians winning a fictional championship. Hey, So despite winning a fictional championship in Major League, the Cleveland Cavaliers would fall victim to one of Michael Jordan's most famous buzzer beaters, one that even has its own name in Cleveland, The Shot. The inbounds pass comes into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win it! They win it! By that October in 1989, I had already witnessed and experienced enough to know that things weren't always the way they seemed to be. So was 1989 a strange year? Or maybe it was because I was 10 and just becoming more aware of what life was all about. But I can tell you that I certainly did not like what I was seeing. Unfortunately, for most kids that grew up in the Cleveland area in 1989, the weekend of October 27th was anything but normal. The innocent lives we were still clinging to were shattered when reports came out that 10-year-old Amy Renee Mahalovic had been abducted from Bay Square in Bay Village, Ohio. Amy was last seen on Friday afternoon at this Bay Village shopping center. It's right across the street from the police department. She had gone into Baskin Robbins for some ice cream with her friends and then later was seen talking with a man. Amy's abductor has been described as a white male, 35 to 45 years old, approximately 5'8", and wearing glasses. Well, I think that there was a familiarity. Uh, he was familiar with Amy. He knew how to contact her. He knew information about Amy's mother. I've always taught them the rules. You never go with anyone anywhere, but that's how we got through her, through her soft heart. She wanted to do something for mom, and it was supposed to be kept a secret. Police describe the man as white, in his early 30s, about 5'9", of medium build, with dark hair, a bald spot in the back, and round glasses. One of Amy's friends reportedly told police that Amy said she was to meet someone who claimed to be a friend of the family to go buy her mother a surprise gift. Well, we're encouraged uh, every day we get leads, uh, especially after your broadcasts. Uh, we follow them up. Uh, uh, we're still looking. Here, of course, Amy's abduction was accomplished as a part of a ruse. And the FBI's William Brannan says he may still be in the area, carefully watching the investigation. 
and the best way to recognize him is a change of character. Brandon says the kidnapper may have become anxious, lost sleep or weight, and may drink heavily or turn to drugs. Bay Village police and the FBI aren't thumbing their nose at any clues, including the remotest of possible leads. Right now, time is the enemy, as the abductor's trail grows colder by the day. If a victim is just snatched off of the street, obviously they're going to raise a commotion. That's going to draw attention. People will see vehicles. People will see a struggle. Uh, in this case, the victim does not know uh, at this point that she or he is a victim. I went and interviewed Chief Spetzel a few months back in regards to Amy's case, and I wanted to get his perspective on what October 27th, 1989 was like for him. Can you describe to me what the day was like? I mean, you went and spoke to her class, correct? Right. So that day, October 27th, 89, you know, it was actually a beautiful day. It was a sunny day in, in the area. It was uh, unseasonably warm and um, a typical day in Northeast Ohio otherwise. And um, I was working the midnight shift and uh, was asked to go speak to a class at the middle school. And um, just looking back now, at the time I did that, it didn't connect to this case until about three weeks later when someone reminded me that, hey, didn't you speak to a middle school class at that time? And like, well, yeah, I think I did. Turns out Amy was actually in the class that I spoke to that day. And I didn't realize it for weeks until after I actually did it. After speaking with the authorities in regards to the day that Amy went missing, I wanted to hear from true crime author James Renner in regards to that day. And she left her bike at the school and walked over to the Bay Plaza after school on, on that Friday. It was a sunny Friday afternoon, October 27th, 1989. It was a warm day. Yeah. For that time of year. Mm -hmm. As I recall, I remember I did, I looked up the weather for sure. that day and, you know, it basically peaked out at like 70. So it was for that area. That was a very warm. Yeah. And then you've got two of her classmates who saw, saw a man approach Amy. One of them thought it was her father only because he had never actually met her father. And all he sees is this older man, uh, well-dressed, uh, kind of eyes-odd clothes and a, a members-only jacket and may or may not have had glasses. And he walks over to Amy, calls out her name first, says, Amy. And she looks over and he walks over, puts an arm around her, whispers something in her ear and leads her away. Um, and a couple things that are important here. Nobody actually saw her get into a car. He might have walked her around the corner and gotten into a car there that was a little not as public. Yeah, I'm familiar with the plaza, yeah. but but most people aren't. Yeah, it's like an L-shaped uh, or U-shaped um, plaza with stores lining and uh, she was near the corner uh, where Baskin Robbins was, and she was kind of, she was waiting for this man, waiting for her ride, twirling on one of the, the poles out there when he comes up, and two classmates see this happen, and they're the ones that have met with crime scene, you know, suspect composite artists to, to say what the man looked like. Um, so it's important to note that she wasn't seen getting into a vehicle, so either he walked her around the corner and had a vehicle parked back there because there's an auto body shop next door and there's this little space in between the plaza and the auto body shop where you could have parked a car. It's also important to note that directly across the street from where the abduction took place was the police station. Now, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't widely, you know, it's not like there was a giant sign out there that said police station. I mean, there's a side a sign around the corner, but it just looks kind of like an, a big brick town hall. And to me, that says that the man was comfortable enough to be in Bay Village, meaning 
white, you know, uh, kind of affluent looking. He could blend in he with He could the... blend in, but probably not from Bay Village. Otherwise, would... he would have known the police stations there. My feeling about him not being from Bay is that, one, he's taken one hell of a risk by going to a plaza where he lives yeah, right. to abduct a girl, and the chances of him being recognized are a little too high. Exactly right. In yeah. my mind, to I mean, I know that he was already ballsy enough to make those you know calls and he's got to think in his mind that this is a place i will never in my life go to again like i can never be seen in this place again so if if he knew that he'd ever have to go back in that plaza he wouldn't have have chosen that place right yeah yeah i mean it's been reported that the bay village police department were having a station photograph taken that day so i wanted to ask chief spetzel about it you know i've read that you the 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 Bay Village Police Department was having a group photo that day. Is that true or is that? We uh, we had a meeting that day. A meeting. So we had departmental meetings uh, usually once, maybe twice a year. And we had a meeting that day, actually. Uh, I don't know if it was at the exact same time, but we did have a meeting that day. So what would have resulted was a lot of cars parked at the police department, which of course was located directly across the street from the shopping area from where she is abducted, uh, which seems a little bit ironic that uh, the the police department would be extremely busy on a day when she's abducted, but that's the reality of it. I went and spoke with Mark Mahalovic, Amy's father, in regards to October 27th, 1989, and what that day was like for him. So what was the day like that you said you were in Cincinnati? Were you in Cincinnati the day? Yes. On October 27th? Uh-huh. Just, we, that was a Friday, and uh, we had his own meeting down there in Cincinnati. And uh, when I got home here, it must have been about 6 o'clock at night. And uh, uh, well, Mar Margaret was at uh, running around. She's like, I said, what's the matter? Oh, what's the matter? Uh, I can't find Amy. I can't find Amy. And that's how it all began. According to Chief Spetzel, when Amy's mother arrived at the police station, they immediately took this as a missing child report. We immediately took this as a, a, as a missing person report and acted that way. But it got more serious as it got dark and more people were contacted and... and Nobody seemed to know where she was. So it got to be a little more traumatic. And then, of course, we, we involved the media uh, to help locate her. Um, and then we started our investigative process. As hard as it must have been, I asked Mark Mahalovic what it was like that day. Do you remember what you did when you got home? Well, yeah. you know, uh, by then Margaret had called uh, uh, all the Amy's parents' friends or fr uh, friends and... Uh, called some of our friends uh, that lived in, in fact, I was just uh, out to lunch with this uh, one guy that came in, he lived in uh, Vermilion, came in from Vermilion, and that's when him and I uh, walked to French Creek, they're all the way from Bay Village to the lakefront that night, and... Uh, According to Chief of Police Mark Spetzel, it wasn't unusual to have a missing child during the day. Because it's not, it's not untypical to have a missing child in the daytime, early afternoon. You know, they went to a friend's house, they, they did whatever, uh, you know, somebody else picked them up and they went shopping, whatever. The unusual part about this is they had checked with friends, they had checked with relatives, they had checked with Amy's friends and, and nobody had seen her. And then once it starts to get dark, that ups the stakes. Because no 10-year-old girl is going to be out after dark on her own, not with her friends, not with her relatives, in a... A 10-year-old girl uh, is life that's very small. You know, there's not a whole lot of interaction with other people. Right. And when you start checking with those people and they don't know where she is, you know, obviously that raises concern. When I was meeting with Mark Mahalovic, I wanted to know what it was like to be the parent of a missing child and 
when do you or if you ever do call it a night that first day as a parent like when you're out searching how does it how do you even come to the conclusion like that it's time to stop searching that night oh i don't know i don't know if there was you know you you up all night uh i was up all night uh uh, if i remember right uh in the kitchen there the phone was hanging on the wall in the kitchen we didn't have it's not like we had wireless and uh, margaret uh camped right below that uh phone that night in the kitchen floor waiting for the phone to ring chief spetzel returned to the Bay Village Police Station at 11 p.m. on October 27, 1989, to start his evening shift, and he was dispatched to the Mahalovic home on that night. So the police station is back then was generally quiet like it is today, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so when that happened, it just... Yeah, it, yeah. We, we brought in extra people immediately. Uh, we searched that night into the overnight hours. I remember that when I came on at 11 o'clock, I was assigned to go back to her house. I walked, myself and another officer, walked through the house with uh, Mark Mahalovic. Again, just to look for anything out of the ordinary, we searched around his property. We walked the railroad tracks. And while I'm doing this, of course, there's other officers searching other locations where she may have been, including the middle school, uh, the metro parks, around the shopping center, you know, looking for any type of clue that we can come up with. Wanting to know as much as I can about that day, I reached out to Special Agent Phil Torsney. You know, up until now, we're still working on it. Not as many people, but, uh, you know, the drive is still there with the Bay Village Police Department. The FBI is still working on the case 29 years later. And after I retired, I was brought back by uh, Prosecutor McGinty and then um, Prosecutor O'Malley for a period of time. And then uh, the chief at Bay Village here in the city of Bay Village has brought me in to on a part-time basis, you know, after I retired to, to uh, work on the case because, you know, I'm, I'm one of the few people still around, uh, or at least was when I retired, that was familiar with the case from the beginning. It's, uh, you know, there's an agent in, in Cleveland still works the case, several agents, but it's a hard case to catch up on if you weren't working on it from, from day one or two because a lot of work's been done. There's a lot of nuances. There's a lot of, a lot of in, intense investigation that's been done. It, it's a hard case to catch up on from scratch. So that's how I'm back working on the case. But never, you know, it's never left my mind, like a lot of the officers here, and, and we continue to, uh, to work on it. And after, you know, my time here is done working on it, uh, you know, I'll still be available. Like, the agents who worked on it back then, the case agents who I talk to now, if I have a question, I call them. I wasn't the original case agent. I okay. was just out here covering leads. Uh, the original case agents and detectives, we, we talked to them all the time because they were the ones who really were carrying the administrative burden and all that early on. So, And the chief, of course, was here when all this happened as well, Chief Spetzel from Bay Village. I asked Chief Spetzel when it was that they found out the new details in regards to Amy's disappearance. It was the next day when uh, uh, one of her friends came forward and said that she had been talking about meeting somebody to go shopping to buy her mother a gift. And we realized that next day that... um, this is, a, this is a, uh, far more than just a missing child. This is likely an abduction. It's likely an abduction that was planned and that was set up. And so your focus, your investigation now turns to those facts and you start to deal with those facts. That first night for the Mahalovic family must have been horrific. The fact that Amy had yet to contact the family and there was no sign of her anywhere helped confirm that this was 
no ordinary missing girl. As far as the phone caller, do you know how many times she was called, or are you just aware of that there was a phone caller and a no, bruise? No, you know, in this case, fortunately, Amy told, you know, some associates about a phone call. Otherwise, if, if she had just kept it a secret, which, you know, people that do this kind of thing normally tell the victim, you know, don't tell anybody, keep it a secret. In this case, it's a, a gift for your mother. We don't want to, you know, ruin the surprise, that kind of thing. But no, the answer is we don't know how many phone calls there were. We know there was a phone call to Amy, which, uh, but it's it's likely, I think, in my mind, that, that there was probably more than one phone call made. Um, just a familiarity thing, again, and maybe establishing the individual, establishing a more of a uh, comfort level with Amy than one phone call would take. You know, we don't know that, but that's certainly a possibility. With the first 24 hours being so critical, I wanted to ask Chief Spetzel on when he knew things could end badly. I think when you, again, you hate to look at statistics and commonalities, but generally when a, a young child is abducted, and especially for these types of purposes, the child is probably dead within 24 hours. But you look at Cleveland and you've got a case where three women were found, you know, abducted, you know, under 18 and found 10 years later. So I, I, we always had the hope. We never gave up hope we would find her alive. But certainly, her, given her age, the circumstances, you know, the, the ever-growing duration of it, it, you know, you had less hope. But nobody gave up complete hope. Those first 109, eight, nine days, whatever it was, we were looking for Amy. After that, we were trying to solve a homicide. So all resources went to finding her. And whatever we had to do to locate her, that's what we were doing. The city and the citizens felt like they had been punched in the gut. How could one of their own be taken right out from under their noses, across from the police station, nonetheless. As the days progressed, new information was being released regularly, with the most important being that of this phone caller, who had potentially lured Amy to the plaza that Friday afternoon. The information about this phone caller was given by two of Amy's friends who had been told of the plan on the day of the meeting. In speaking with Chief Spetzel, these kids were able to provide a few very significant details, one of the most important being that Amy was told she had $45 to spend, and if there was any money left over, that she could also get a gift. Definitely uh, at least two, possibly three of her friends had information on this meeting that she was going to have after school with this individual to go buy a gift from her mother. In fact, uh, they talked about that uh, she had $45 to spend and she was going to go to the mall. So there's some pretty specific details within that conversation that she relayed to her friends. I've always been perplexed by this phone caller, so I wanted more details from Special Agent Torsney. The phone caller. Do you know how many times she was called or are you just aware of that there was a phone caller and a, yeah, and a no, bruise. We, you know, in this case, fortunately, Amy told some associates about a phone call. Otherwise, if, if she had just kept it a secret, which, you know, people that do this kind of thing normally tell the victim, you know, don't tell anybody, keep it a secret. In this case, it's a, a gift for your mother. We don't want to, you know, ruin the surprise, that kind of thing. But no, the answer is we don't know how many phone calls there were. We know there was a phone call to Amy, which, uh, but it's it's likely, I think, in my mind, that, that there was probably more than one phone call made. 
um, just a familiarity thing again and maybe establishing the individual establishing a more of a uh, comfort level with Amy than one phone call would take you know we don't know that but that's certainly a possibility I asked Mark Mahalovic whether or not Amy would have ever considered going with a stranger and this was his response um, Chief Spetzel mentioned about Margaret had a secret code yeah the kids and I don't I, I think I remember the word but if somebody said I'm here to pick up you at school they uh, without them saying the, the, the secret word uh, they knew that that was not they weren't uh, supposed to be doing that so the discussion about going with a stranger was it was it was brought up yeah uh-huh so again it just reiterates the fact that she had to have known or that's what makes you think even more that she knew something about this person that uh, she went off with. I wanted to get some understanding of what the mood of the police station was like on the day October 27, 1989. So I went to the man who was there, Chief Mark Spetzel. What was the mood like at the police station when the when Margaret actually came and said Amy's missing? Well, we take every missing child seriously, right. as we did with this one. Um, but ultimately, almost in every case, obviously up to this point, there's a reason, rationale, there's a location where the child is found. You know, it's with a relative, it's, you know, she rode to her friend's house, forgot to tell mom. So these are usually resolved. And I think the, uh, initially, we're thinking, okay, we're gonna be able to resolve this. It always happens, we're gonna find this child, no, no problem. But again, like I said, as it got, as the time got farther along, and we confirm the fact that she wasn't with relatives, she's not with her close friends, it's getting dark, then you start to get a little bit more worried. Uh, and then it really, like I said, ramps up and you realize that this is not your typical girl who went to a friend's house and we just haven't located her yet. This is something far more significant. One of the many unfortunate circumstances of this case was that Margaret, Amy's mother, had to battle alcoholism as well as lupus during Amy's disappearance. And I wanted to talk to Mark Mahalovic about that aspect of the case. I mean, I, when Amy went missing, it was the end of October, but it was extremely warm, nice out. And uh, our house in Bay Village uh, backed up to the railroad tracks, but in between the railroad tracks and the main yard, there was a, uh, I don't know, 25 foot buffer of woods. I mean, you could see through them and stuff, but there was a, there was a 25 foot buffer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I remember one time, uh, Bill, uh, I think it was the FBI or the police, I can't remember which, now. Uh, they were out in that right on the edge of that buffer were talking to Margaret. Uh, and they came back in uh, one of those times. And uh, they didn't really yell at me, but they made it very forceful. Mark, you got to stop her from drinking. We keep getting different stories from her out there. She's not, on, she's not giving us the same information. It's sad, but true. But Margaret's drinking played a major role in the way that she was perceived in the investigation. Mom knows what sweatpants yeah. she was wearing. I mean, she knows what color they were. Well, you would think, but Margaret, unfortunately, she, she had her issues with drinking. And there was a lot going on in her life. And one of the FBI agents told me, and I, and I, I hate to talk bad about family members and Margaret, and I care a lot about Mark Mihalovic and Jason Mihalovic, so I know that stuff like <clears> this hurts when, when we say it, but it's important, I think, to get a picture of what was going on there. Um, I was told that Margaret was so drunk when they tried to interview her after Amy went missing that she couldn't recall what Amy was wearing that day. She had no idea. I asked Chief Spetzel, where do you begin when you have such little evidence to begin with? With the fact that 
the guy in the collar, the murderer, the suspect, used Margaret's mm-hmm. work as the conduit to setting up the meeting. Could that have been used as a misdirection opposed to, you know, let's say he really worked with Amy's dad? You know, obviously I don't know that because I don't know who this individual is, but I tend to believe that Margaret would have been um, the key to that because I think that, uh, you know, first of all, Margaret and Amy were close. You know, they rode horses together. They hung out together. They, they were more close. And I think that there had to be some factual basis in Amy's mind for this trip to meet this person. And I think that would make sense. And I also think that for them to have the information they did um, implies some familiarity with Margaret. Coming up this season on Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic, we will take a look at the suspects, speak with the investigators, as well as the family in regards to who they think killed Amy Mihaljevic. Well, the, the interesting part is, you know, there are so many names out there that uh, I, there's, there's obviously probably over a hundred that I recognize if you were to pull out these thousands of names. Just because something's in the media doesn't mean it's correct. And we have information that's uh, the general public doesn't know and the media doesn't know and it's, it's in-house here. We could take some new information, not focus on uh, certain areas and take new information and solve the case that way. So what would you like to see, I mean, other than the killer being caught, I mean, do you, will that actually provide any closure to you? Well, you uh, gonna be... oh, yeah, well, somebody once described, made a statement, and it's true, it's like describing a color on the phone that nobody's ever seen before. Back uh, when it's, you know, you want an eye for an eye when this thing, for, but now I guess, I just think, uh, uh, if when they catch the person, just put them in a general prison population. They'll take care of it. They'll take care of it. Now, you said you wanted an eye for an eye back then, so you, you were... You oh, yeah. For... Oh, yeah. Kill us on bitch. Do you guys have a DNA profile of this we, suspect? We do not. We have, we have DNA. Uh, I won't get into too much detail, but it's not... We don't have DNA that you can plug into CODIS and come out with a suspect. I'll just leave it at that. We were on the phone today with scientists, myself and, and some of the detectives, scientists from various organizations, in an effort to take what we have as far as science goes in this case and forensics goes in this case and move forward to, uh, to something that might help us make an identification or a resolution. That's ongoing uh, if it takes years or maybe a couple days or a couple hours, but that's been a process that, that we've kept up with I believe as DNA has progressed and we continue to keep up with that and make submissions, inquiries, uh, in the hopes that uh, science will help us resolve this case. I'm really of the belief there's someone out there who has direct or very closely direct information about who did this. You know, we have some, you know, we have bait in the net to some extent. We have. Uh, stuff out there we look at that's important. If it was simple, it'd be solved by now. But whatever the explanation is, it's, it's not simple. You can help support the podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to speaking with you next week 
on who killed Amy Mihaljevic. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters, it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Let's go.